Welcome back to the newest episode of the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva, and I'm very pleased to welcome today the guitarist from the Choir Boys and the Down and Outs, one Mr. Paul Guerin. How you doing? Hey, how are you? How's things? Fantastic. <laughs> I'm here talking to you. It's pretty good. <laughs> things, I, lo I love your brick back backdrop. Oh, yeah. Hard work. This was all hard work at the studio here, let me tell you. I understand that, trust me. <laughs> so um, it's really awesome to have you on here because I've been a fan of the Choir Boys since I was a little kid. And uh, I had the pleasure of seeing you guys, unfortunately, only once uh, live. But it was an awesome show and it was the, the 35 and live show. Yeah. And uh, we'll get we'll get into all that. But so it's just really cool to have you on. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about music and your life, your career, all that stuff. So we'll just kind of hop right into it. So, um, yes. well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. And you clearly sound like you're from Canada. <laughs> I'm clearly from Canada. <laughs> via, via the northeast of England. That's right. There you go. So, uh, yeah, let's just kind of start. We'll start kind of from the beginning here. So growing up, yeah. um, so obviously from northern England. Yes. Whereabouts? A small uh, coastal town called Blythe. And um, if you Google it, it has a very famous football team, B-L-Y-T-H, the, the famous Blythe Spartans. So there's some good history there. Um, you know, great place to grow up right on the, on the coast. Very cold, but fun. And when you were growing up, was music one of those things, like just kind of music always on in the house? Or how did, when did those early influences start coming in? It was always music on the house. There was me and my mother and my sister. And um, we lived upstairs at my grandmother's. And we had one of those real old-fashioned little record players. And my mother played Elvis and Hank Williams and Jim Reeves, you, you know, like all day long. So, you know, my love for the music started then and I still love that music. And um, we had this real wonky old black and white TV and you actually had to put money in the TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm showing my age here. And then, um, Obviously, you know, it was all black and white, but then I started watching the, you know, the, the bands on the TV, you know, and uh, I remember I loved Herman's Hermits in the 60s. And the funny story is, the bass player, Carl, about 20 years ago, I became friends with him, and his best friend was Keith Moon. Oh, wow. And if you, if you watch Herman's Hermits... You know, it's pretty tame stuff. And you'd think they're all these squeaky clean fellas. And then, you know, I'm sitting having a drink with Carl. And, he, you know, well, you can just imagine him and Mooney. Yeah. It was like, it was like, <laughs> wow. You know, you wouldn't realize. Yeah. Looks can be deceiving, huh? <laughs> Very deceiving. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Well, actually, it's funny because even for... Uh... Herman's Hermits. I I don't know. I know one song by them, and I only know that because it was on a movie I used to watch when I was. It was on a comedy movie. Yeah, called The Naked Gun. It was a great movie. It's a in, into something good. It's a great song. I always like that one. Well, I remember the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 
so kind of growing up then, when did, uh, so other than guitar, did you, do you know how to play any other instruments or was guitar the first thing that you picked up and, and stuck with it? It was, it was the guitar. There was a band called Slade <laughs> that really, that, that was, you know, when Slade came on the scene and um, my friend, who's still a great friend who lived opposite, um, he had a guitar. And then, of course, we started listening to Slade in the early 70s. And um, I was super jealous he had a guitar. <laughs> so um, I, got a, I got the guitar for my 12th birthday. And I joined the Slade fan club and used to get a newsletter every month or so. And Dave Hill, the guitar player, would put a little guitar lesson. Just, you know, it was very basic and simple, but... It was very exciting, you know, and he had the most ridiculous haircut that went like this. It was like, you know, like some pharaoh from Egypt. <laughs> and of course, there was this one day my mother and my sister went to Newcastle shopping and she had these scissors, these great big, looked like what you would cut a yeah, hedge with. So the carpet scissors. So I decided to cut my hair the same and it was wonky every time till it got up to about here. And I'll never forget when they came back with us shopping, both fell on the floor rolling around laughing. <laughs> you know, and I'm like this. Yeah. You know. I'm a rock star. I'm trying to be a rock star. Yeah, I'm 12 years <laughs> old and I want to look like Dave Hill. And of course, then the 70s, everything just exploded in my world, you know, with, well... You, you name it from Thin Lizzy, UFO, Deep Purple. It was just like, you know, Aladdin's cave of music. And my my sister, who's a little bit older than me, but don't tell anybody, she doesn't let anybody know. But she loved bands like Roxy Music, etc. So there was a real great balance of what I, you know, and Bowie. So I got to listen to all this and, you know, she's, she's fabulous. So she would take me to concerts when I was young. So, you know, in the early 70s, I got to see all those great bands. Because I was only 10, 11, 12, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, and that's a great age to start getting exposed to that stuff, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, you know what? It's still exciting, but it, can you imagine it was very exciting then? And you know what's really funny is um, I'm on this group chat with guys I've known for 45 years, friends of mine. And a lot of them have kept their ticket stubs, you know, and they've had them mounted in frames, you know. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but what, what's fascinating is the ticket prices. And you've got Led Zeppelin for the equivalent of a dollar. You know, all the prices, you know, ACDC, you know, £1.20. It's like, it's wild. If only. If only. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I even remember um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to I saw uh, Joe Bonamassa at the Royal Albert Hall uh, two years ago. And, yeah. and I've, I've been to a couple comedy shows at the Royal Albert Hall, actually. And when you when you walk through, they have like a bunch of posters and stuff from past past groups who've played there. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, name it. I mean, Royal Albert Hall is iconic. So literally everyone's played there. And there there was one show where it was uh, the beat, I believe it was the Beatles and Zeppelin were a double bill back in right. like back, back in their 
kind of primed right back when they came oh, yeah. out. I mean, it's just crazy. But it's like one of those things, you know, I've been asked many times about many things and, you know, what really still gets you excited. And um, a, a few, well, a few years ago, um, I played the Albert Hall with the down and outs, opening up for Paul Rogers. And it's just walking on that stage, knowing what's gone before you. And I remember being in the dressing rooms. Now, the dressing rooms aren't, they're, they're not quite what you would expect. It's like, um, like the locker room at the gym. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was, it's, it's quite funny that, but it, I, I remember just sitting there thinking, I wonder if Sinatra had this one. Unless You're it, right. But then again, perhaps that has something a little more fancy for him. But it's just these iconic venues in the, you know, what's in the, the DNA in the walls and on the stage and the his, the musical history of what's gone on these places. It's just, it's still, I get shivers now thinking about it. Well, and it must be interesting too, like, because I'm sure you can remember you know, as a, as a kid growing up and going to these shows and then getting older, then maybe you start playing, you know, some smaller oh, yeah. stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, whether it's Royal Albert Hall or, you know, a different venue in a different country, then you go like, what? like you walk on, like, I'm actually like on stage right now at this place. Like, Oh, absolutely. That's, that's one of, you know, the top 10 thrills for me is places I made of, you know, you know, I've become friends with people who that I queued up to buy tickets for. Sometimes slept in a bag overnight outside Newcastle City Hall. And then I ended up playing with them and, you know, on these stages. And yeah, it's 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 still really special to me that like Hammersmith Odeon, you know, I, I remember the first time I played there, it was just, I just had to take a moment and stand and think, I can't believe it. You know, it's like, it's like I've won the lottery. So at what point did you think, I want to be a musician? This is what I want to do. This is my passion. I want to do this. Well, as I say, it started with, you know, the fact my friend Chrissy Bauer had a guitar that was envious. <laughs> and then it obviously, um, <laughs> sorry, I, you know, I digress. But I think if, if I had that guitar now, I, I still probably couldn't play it. It was so awful. <laughs> right? You could drive a bus under the strings. But that's at the point. It, it, then the interest grew, and um, you know when you start developing as a player and figuring things out. And you know, I, I have this student. He's just a young chap. And of course, nowadays you have everything at your disposal to learn on the internet. What we used to do was we'd put the record on the turntable and take your sock and shoe off and put your toe on the record to slow it down so oh, you could pick the notes out. But of course, the pitch would change. So it would be like, boo, doo, boo. And then it would get faster and you'd go up the neck, you see. But I, had a, I just had a, such a passion for it because it was that feeling of actually getting somewhere. And then, you know, you, you form your first teenage band and, you know, write your first terrible songs. <laughs> but um, but at school, I had a great set of friends who all had, were very like-minded. And um, we had this uh, 
geography teacher called Mr. Stevenson who played guitar. Smashing fella. And um, I used to play an assembly with him. And then he would let us use the sixth form block after school for free to rehearse. So, you know, it was, it, again, it was just exciting. Good teacher. That's awesome. Yeah. Let, yeah. Brilliant, awesome. brilliant guy. Say, sorry? Well, he fostered that. You know, he, he created an yeah. environment where he saw that a bunch of these young kids are kind of into this and, yeah, let me kind of yeah. help them out of it. Yeah, well, he, he saw that we actually wanted to do something very positive and we, we loved it. And then at what point where was it where you're like, OK, I'm getting good. You know, I'm actually proficient at guitar at this point. And then you kind of start when, when do things when does the ball start rolling in that? Well, what happened was then, you know, it, obviously in my later teens, you know, it was, it, you know, still in bands in the northeast of England. And um, I, you know, I was working for bands, playing in bands. Um, you know, I was I was doing a degree at college in electronic engineering, so that was to please my father. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I finished that, and you know, the day jobs and everything. But by then, I knew, and an opportunity came with some guys that I knew and some I played with. They were moving to London. And they'd, uh, they had made an album that, you know, had made some waves in Kerrang! and whatnot. So, um, too long a story, but someone dropped out, so there was a spare room at this house. So I was actually 24 then, and we moved to Tottenham in North London, and that's when, the, that's when it really began, you know. And uh, you know we would wash dishes in the in the daytime. That's why I really don't like washing dishes now. <laughs> you did your you time. Know, like in, in Soho, you know, you washing this great big pot, <sighs> and then five minutes later, I would come back. No, I'm going to wash it again. But you know, it paid for strings and things, and and the thing is. The late 80s, early 90s in London was such a fantastic scene. It was really going on. And, you know, you had the marquee, all, you know, all of, whether it was the Hope and Anchor, the marquee, the Astoria, Hammersmith Orion, and smaller places. There was all these great places for bands who were starting off, getting a bit more well-known to go up through the ranks. And it was, you know, and so it was like, 1989, 1990, when the choir boys really took off. And it was a real like-minded scene in London. So everybody dressed the same and it was just, you know, it was it was like Sunset Strip without the without the weather. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I was going to ask you that, which was like, I would assume that if you're trying to make it in the, in the music industry, London would be the place to be at that time. Or even oh, if, absolutely. Really. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've got a hair in my mouth. <laughs> Plenty <laughs> on my head. Right. Yo, you, listen, you you had to go there. And, um, you know, and again, you know, with synchronicity of how things, when you look back, how, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of luck and, you know, getting noticed 
And um, my band at the time was called Montana Red Dog, which became the Red Dogs. And I still prefer the name Montana Red Dog because it's, it's a card game. But anyway, and um, Ginger Wildheart had been sacked from the choir boys and he came back to England and his best friend was a journalist for Kerrang. And they had heard our bass player, Mick Young, it was a fantastic bass player, which he was and is. So they came to see us one night to basically pinch the bass player. <laughs> but, but this journalist, Ray Zell, um, was so impressed with my band, we got a, a glowing review in Kerrang. And um, his girlfriend worked for a, a record company. And it just, you know... The, the, the wheels rolled from there. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the next thing, uh, well, not the next thing, but, um, you know, we got, on the, we got on that ladder and played the marquee. And then the choir boys came back from recording um, a little bit of What You Fancy in LA, and we got the opening spot at the marquee club. And then, you know, they, boom, you know, biggest band in England. Uh, the band called Pretty Boy Floyd was supposed to open for them. It, it, it fell through at the last minutes. So my band got the opening spot on the big tour. So that's when that relationship started. So, and for that tour, would that have been like a tour of England or a tour, uh, like a kind of more of a world tour? Because that was no, a no, good album. Well, there you go. they were doing a world tour. We did, we did England. Okay. Yeah, but the thing is that, you know, that was, that was, I'd gone from playing, you know, the dives to playing, opening up for sold out crowds every night, which was, again, fabulous. And I loved the choir boys, so I got to see them every night. Well, that, yeah, I was going to ask you that too, which was like, so you must have known who they were at that time, because, I mean, not for people who don't know, I mean, that when that album came out, like that, particularly the, the debut album, and that was a mega album. Like, it really yeah. did well for them. That's kind of what started that. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. I dropped something. Yeah. You know what? It was, it was, of all of the albums at that time, you know, and I can say this unbiasedly because I'm, I'm backtracking a little. I went to see a band called White Lion, and it must have been 87, 88 at the old Marquee Club. And the choir boys were the opening act. And I remember going back to my hovel in Tottenham saying to the boys, I've just seen the best band I've ever seen, a band called the Choir Boys. And, um, and here we are all these years later. So, and they, you know, they were the kings of the London scene at the time. So. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you're opening for them, <clears throat> you're playing, and yeah. then obviously you're playing these huge, huge crowds. And I mean, that must have just been an unreal feeling getting to watch them play. And yeah. when, at what point did you join the band? Because you joined the band in 93? No, no, no. It was years later. Oh, um, oh yeah. There's, there's a, a lot of time between that. What happened was um, my band. I broke up in like say '92. We did, you know, we did a few albums. Uh, we did an album called Working Late, and we did it at John Entwistle's house, well, his castle. 
he turned the ballroom into a recording studio. And um, I mean, this place was off the scale. It's like you know, a proper rock star 70s castle. You know, you walk through the door in suits of armor and I mean, it ticked every box. And, um, you know, we became very good friends with them um, over the period of time there. But anyway, mine for whatever reason. So, you know, I did a lot of things. And then um, Spike came to live with me in my flat in London um, around about 2000. And he was, he was, you know, he was doing this and that and the other. And then um, he asked me to do an album called It's a Treat to Be Alive. So I did that. And then um, the guitarist, Luke Bossendorfer, who lives, lived and lives in Los Angeles, because the choir boys had re relocated back to England, it wasn't practical for him to be flying back and forward. And I was already playing with Spike's solo band. So that was 2002, 2003. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still the new boy. <laughs> you are, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like that, it sounded like a pretty, it sounded like a pretty natural progression then. I mean, you kind of, you, you build that relationship by opening for them and you kind of stay in touch. Yeah. And yeah. Mike comes to live with you. You play in a solo band or solo album and then you get the invite for the choir boys. Yeah. Then, I guess then. Yeah. The, it was, it was seamless. So, uh, Again, you know, looking back, it's just, you know, how the how the road maps out, you know, it was, yeah, it was great. Well, it's funny because yesterday you and I were, we had a little discussion. We were talking about networking, yeah. <laughs> how important networking is and <laughs> proof of the pudding right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. And of course, people have more chance to do it now with the social media and, and you name it. But at the same time, it's the it's the balance. Everybody's networking. Exactly. Got to stand yeah, yeah. up. Yeah. But so, you know, it it does happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so you joined the choir boy. So it's about two thousand three. And what's the first album that you recorded with them? The first album was Well Oiled. Okay. Yeah. Right. And. Um, it's so funny looking back because we we did it in a very simple way with not much equipment, studio equipment, etc. But um, that you know that came around very quickly, and then you know as you as you probably know, I mean we've been on the road ever since, and then we've, we've basically released an album almost every year ever since. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been quite some um, journey and work schedule. And continuing to record and continuing, well, once once all this is over, then getting back on, on the road and doing all that again. Yeah, well, it, I mean, Amazing Disgrace was released two years ago. Um, and if, you know, if the plague hadn't come along and done what it <laughs> did, you know, like, I can guarantee we would have had another album out by now mm -hmm. 
but we we have re-recorded uh, a little bit of what you fancy. Um, but again, the the challenges were there because you know you can't get everybody in the studio together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but that will be released within the next few months. And the reason we've re-recorded it is because Parlophone still own it, and we can't do anything with it. But you know, you know, that's a common thing these days. A lot of artists have done that. Well, it's funny because I remember uh, with the band The Cars. Yeah, they were. I believe. Well, I believe it was them. But I mean, if it wasn't them, a number of bands kind of have this. We'll say dilemma, <laughs> which is that they they can be, especially back in the day when they'd be these huge, mega successful bands, but they wouldn't have. They, they hardly had any money because it wasn't going to them. It was going to managers and you know yeah. production companies, whatever. All the, all the suits were, you know. Kind oh yeah. Of, Soaking it up, you know. I mean, it's interesting because I remember I don't know how many years ago it was. It was uh, George Michael who highlighted this and said the deals are just ridiculous. You know, you're selling millions of albums and you've got no money. You know, where is the money? But you know, when you're young and naive and you sign these things, you know, it's like. There you go. You've signed it in blood. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm not. Yeah, not everybody's a crook, but you know, I, you know, there's a lot of things that were done within the law, but ethically not really fair on the artist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. If I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. And so I, you know, and it's funny. I wanted to ask you too. How much? So kind of when you were. Once you started getting pretty serious with guitar back when you were a teenager till, well, pretty much till now, how much do you yeah. play in a day? Like how many hours were you playing guitar? Because you're a damn good guitar player. So that's a lot of, <laughs> lot of practice went into that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, obviously in the, the earlier years, you know, I would just play and play and play. And, you know, when I lived with, with my mother, that poor woman, she would come upstairs and put a cushion under my foot because I was tapping on the floor <laughs> and driving her mad, you know. And it's like, you know, one of my stepsons, I, you know, he's 23 now and I've taught him since he was 12. And he'd be upstairs tapping on the floor and I went, oh, dear God. I thought that poor woman had to put up with. Then, of course, when you're on tour, you, you, you really you don't get time to do anything because you're traveling, you know, airports and, you know, it's not as though you're in some luxury liner where you can lie on the couch and play a guitar. You know, sometimes you are, but, um, so it changes, you know, and obviously over this period of time, I've had more time and I got back into some, you know, playing open tune and slide and I did some, con- you know, um, I got together on something like this, you know, like the Zoom, and there's a guy called Dave Bucket Caldwell, who um, he was in bad company for 20 years. He's a great guitar player, great songwriter. So I did some stuff with him, you know. I've done some stuff with my stepson. Um, I write and record with a guy in Belfast called Kyle Suckling, who's an amazing artist. And it's all different types of music to 
the choir boys all the down and outs, you see. So, and then some days I don't pick it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's great too that you get to, it's nice to keep things fresh, you know, so you can play these different oh, styles with different people and it keeps it new, keeps, keeps the novelty factor. It does, you know, and the thing is, I like to be put out of my comfort zone and it's like, um, you know, well, it's not new, but the, the latest down and outs album, this is how we roll. Joe wrote 90% of that album on piano. Oh. And it's a very different approach to, you know, like what we'll do, etc. And these are epic songs. I mean, beautifully crafted. And, you know, he sent me the demos. And I thought, well, I know who his favourite guitar players are. I, you know, Mick Ronson, Brian May, etc., etc. And I thought I can see how I can incorporate all this. Um, so I, I studied them very well and, you know, doing the modes. And I don't actually know what the modes are, but, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, not that clever. <laughs> I'm not that clever, but, I've, you know, I've listened to um, Ronson and, and all, you know, all these guys enough to realise how they've thought when they've approached the song. And that was a real challenge and a total joy to create those solos that aren't just... Normally, if I walk in the studio with the choir boys, it's like, well, this is how it goes, you know, yeah, we'll do this, bang. It just comes out. Those, the, the ones with Joe had to be crafted. You know, so I really enjoyed that as well. I equally enjoy, obviously, everything I do, but it was a, it was a fully different approach. Mm -hmm. Well, and how did you end up with the down and outs? Because, and that's that's you, uh, Keith, and Guy as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, well, what it was, um, this you know, this goes back to two thousand and nine, um, and Mop the Hoople had got back together to do like five shows. Excuse me, <clears throat> at uh, Hammersmith Audion, and Joe Elliott's the biggest, biggest. Mott the Hoople fan the world, as we all are, you know. And he he wanted to have a band to open up on one of these iconic shows. But of course he couldn't do it with Def Leppard. <laughs> and um, the guy who was looking after Mott the Hoople, uh, Ian Hunter, um, was a guy called Mick Brown, who was our record company boss at the time. And... Joe spoke to him and he says, well, why don't you phone Paul up? He has his number. So I was shopping with my wife on Oxford Street in, in London. <laughs> hey, oh, it's Joe Elliott. <laughs> oh, mate, I, I need a band. Okay, I'll sort it out. And um, it was only supposed to be, we get the whole thing together for that one night. You know, that was, that was as far as the plan went. And then, of course, it went so well and people showed interest and da-da-da. And um, so Joe formed me up because, let's do an album. Okay, let's do an album. And, of course, the first two albums are um, covers of obscure Mott the Hoople and British Lions, etc. songs that he felt 
didn't see the light of day properly. You know, and he wanted to, you know, give it a fresh twist. And it's just, you know, he's very, he's very, very passionate about music. Very. And uh, good on him. You know, we, we, we know the whole band did a fine job and these albums were well received. But of course, the third album was all original. So, um, so you know, considering it was only supposed to be a 45 minute set, but uh, 11 years ago, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's still alive and kicking today. Mm. Yeah, 11 years and three albums and probably quite a few tour dates and yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's a live album and DVD and everything. But, you know, great. I'm okay. I'm all for it. <laughs> well, and, and that's what happens, right? Because it, it's you, yeah. you kind of start something and, it, you know, there's no um, destination, we'll say. It's just, let's just yeah, do well said. and see. There, and what, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't this long-term plan. And that's what's been the fun thing about it. It's just evolved. And, you know, we're all great pals. And, you know, we've got Cher, Ross on bass from Vixen, you know, Phil Martini, who's now in the Wayward Sons. It's a it's a terrific band. I mean, obviously we don't we don't get together that often because of the schedules of everybody. But when we have done, it's been magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. I quite like, I, I do like those albums. And well, it was kind of funny because I remember, I'm not sure if it was the first Down and Outs album or the second one, but because um, I follow, you know, Def Leppard on Instagram and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it was like, oh, uh, Joe Elliott's new band. And it was uh, like a little snippet or whatever on Instagram for it. So I checked it out. And, and then, you know, you click on the thing and you're looking at the guys in the band going, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is <pretty> good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know what? The thing is, you know, again, working with Downouts, um, you know, we recorded in Dublin at Joe's studio, and it's a lot of fun and a lot of work because I'll, I'll get the 6 a.m. flight to Dublin in the morning, arrive, and we'll work, like, till whatever silly time. And I'll get the 6 a.m. flight back. And of course, there's a few drinks involved as well. <laughs> so my, you know, my wife would pick me up at the airport, you know, you have fun. I just want to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drained, but terrific. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. I wanted to ask you too, because I, I noticed that when you play, so how when you got into slide guitar, um, yeah. was that something that you, you started learning right when you started playing just electric guitar or did you kind of no. transition later? I, I was to replace somebody in a band who was like this fantastic slide guitar player and I didn't play a slide when I told them I could. <laughs> good move. <laughs> That's a good, so get in there. I jumped, I jumped in the deep end and didn't sleep for a week, you know, just boom. And of course, I, I absolutely love playing slide. Well, and, and it's funny because of that. You play on your second finger, right? I do. And the reason is, um, many years ago, I fell off my motorbike and broke my wrist. And to play with the, the little finger, 
I can't I, I can't move it round to where I really want to do it. So you know, I just I found the finger that felt comfortable. <laughs> <That> worked. <laughs> yeah. And in the choir boys, like live, it's all in standard tuning. I play the slide. Yeah. Yeah. Griff Griff gets all the good stuff with the, the open tuning. But it's it's down to how many guitars we can travel with. So um, you know, I just adapted to playing in, you know, standard tuning. Obviously, I prefer playing in open tuning. Mm-hmm. Makes it a little yeah. easier. But it's just, it's much better. <laughs> And so with that, how many, so, okay, well, I guess just with the choir boys, since you've been with them for so long, how do you determine which guitars that you want to bring on tour? Cause I imagine as most guitar players, I'm sure that, you know, you'll go through periods where you buy guitars and then, you know, swap them out, get new ones, get new old ones. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it really, it boils down to practicality because you know, a, a great percentage of our shows, we have to fly. So we have these coffin cases, which take three guitars each. So, um, you know, so there can only be six electric, six strings, and, you know, and a bass. And then... Um, I've sacrificed one of my guitars to put the bass in the case. I mean, they're superb cases, Scott Dixon cases. So you just got to look at it and go, okay, well, that song. It's like when when we um, played the forum, you know, when we when we did Home Records and Heartbreakers. Obviously, we were doing the album, and I used a lot of different tunings on that album with capos and everything. So I had a, more guitars that I'm normally not, wouldn't say allowed, but <laughs> can take with me. So that's that often um, dictates the, the, the choice of songs we can do because it's all very well seen how quickly tune, retune between songs. And if it's if it's not bang on, it's a it's a din. So um, but I, you know, I'm endorsed by a company called uh, Vintage. And I love their guitars, and I've got so many of them. You know, I've still I've still got my original Gibsons and Fenders, which I showed you. You know, um, but these are quality, quality, great sound instruments, and they're not that expensive. And you know, I don't want to I don't want to take my you know old Gibsons and Fenders out on the road again. Things. You know, I've I've had a couple of guitars stolen in the last couple of years, and you know, I can replace these vintage guitars. I can't, I can't replace those. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, I I remember I saw a video. Um, I think my guitar teacher sent it to me. Actually, it's like those uh, you know, like concert fail videos or whatever. <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't Metallica. It was kind of one of those. One of those kind of genre like in that genre type bands i can't can't place the band right now but the guy was playing a, a 59 les paul on stage it was this giant um it was a festival so it was like looked like there was like a hundred thousand people there yeah and for whatever reason he thought it would be a good idea you know to showmanship 
he's throwing the guitars to his tech and throwing them back. He throws the guitar up in the air and he goes to catch it and he catches it, but it slides down his hand and it destroys the bottom of the Les Paul. Like the thing blows up and it's like, Oh, so, you know, it's about a $700,000 guitar that (laughs) was murdered senselessly on stage. Well, I'll tell you something you may or may not know. It's like, if you watch the, the, the videos of the who and Pete Townsend in big white sort of, you know, gaffer tape letters, it's got one, two, three on the guitars. And that's, that was to let him know, do not smash these guitars up. You know, do not. These are worth good know. money. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good money. You know, but it's, you know, when when you know again when you're younger, you're, you're thinking, why has he put that on his guitar? And then of course you find out later, you know, it was like, do not. <laughs> Well, and it's funny because with because um, what like my one of the earliest bands I grew up listening to was Kiss, so I'm like a yeah. ultimate Kiss fan and all that stuff. And we we're at a show, and this was probably I think this was a live '35 tour, and because Paul would always smash, he always smashes his guitar at the end of every show. And I'm pretty sure he said that was actually from the Who, because the Who was one of his favorite bands. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and. Uh, so he would smash the guitar, but we were we had pretty good tickets for that particular show. And Paul walks to the front of the stage and he's kind of playing and kind of, you know, kind of dancing around. And he sort of swings the guitar down in front of the stage. And there's a guitar tech just kind of hiding below the stage. And he sw- and they swap guitars on stage. Oh, yeah. So then, you know, he's probably playing like a, you know, $8,000 guitar or whatever the hell he's playing. And then he takes this uh, kind of like a $1,000 model and smashes the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah. Like a magician. That's right. Yeah. yeah. A sleight of hand. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I know for a fact that the, the, the sword through a quarter of the neck to make sure it broke. That's right. Yeah. 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 Every trick in the book. That's right. Tricks of the trade, right? <laughs> yeah absolutely well, but, um, sorry go on oh no go for it no I'll tell you what again just come back to mind it was like you know when, when I was recording at John Entwistle's place um, and we became friends he had this sort of like it was like it was like your backdrop there it was like a brick room and because his guitar collection was off the scale and he he said, um, do you want to have a look in there? So, of course, we took it all out. And, <laughs> I mean, this Aladdin's Cave treasure trove of guitars. But, you know, they were all rusted up and, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't been out for years. So, you know, again, you get to play these, these instruments that, you, you know, you see on these old videos. It's fabulous. Is there a particular, I mean, okay, I'm sure there's like a million answers to this question, but as far as anything that comes to mind, was there like a moment when you picked up a guitar, whether it was like early on in your career or, or even when you were just learning, when you just kind of felt that really special connection to the instrument? 
many times, many, many times. And then there's been guitars I've bought or you know, owned that uh, just had no life to them, no life to them. But I'll tell you a lovely story. Um, a guy called Bap Kennedy, who I, I was I played with for a lot of years, and that's who I went to Nashville to record with Steve Earle with. Um, Belfast singer-songwriter. He was originally from a band called Energy Orchard. Just the most fantastic man, fantastic artist. And, um, you know, we toured a lot, a lot. And um, he, you know, he was like Springsteen, you know. He'd write four of the best songs in a day you've ever heard that would take you or I forever. Yeah. <laughs> and he had a Gibson J200, which I always loved. And um, I went to meet him to go and play a gig one night and he had a different guitar. And I, was just, I said, where's the, uh, where's the J200? He said, it's got no songs left in it. Well, I thought that was beautiful. But uh, going back to what you're saying, um, I would say the, and of course there's a bit of bias here, but um, I always adored Rory Gallagher, still do. And um, I got to play Strat. And it's actually on YouTube, I didn't know it was getting filmed. And no one had played this guitar since he'd passed away. And um, I used to work in this fantastic guitar shop in uh, Fulham, New Kings Road uh, Vintage Guitar Emporium. And Rory's brother was bringing Rory's in main instruments in for evaluation for insurance because they were going to go on tour as an exhibition. And Rick Zygmunt phoned me up, he says, get here now. Because he knew I loved Rory. Anyway, I lived five miles away and I got on my bicycle and it took me about three minutes to get there. <laughs> and I just, and I, walk, I walked in and pretend I was just passing. And um, there was Donald, his, his brother, with all the, and I just couldn't contain the excitement. And I said, is, is that the, because the case was closed. I said, is, is, is that the strat? He went, yeah, just go and open it, man. And I opened it. And you know that moment when you open the case and there was this guitar that just had been part of my youth and, well, you know, growing up life. And he says, get it out and play it. And I plugged it into this, like, kid's 10-watt practice amp. And this thing, it just sung. It was just, it, it, was, a, it was a life force on its own. Just, a, you know, beyond. So, you know, there is more to it than just a piece of wood and some strings and, you know. Yeah, well, when you opened that case, the, the angels were singing and the... <laughs> oh, you know, it was just fluttering out and, you know, that smell and the history. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to back you up a little bit. You recorded with Steve Earle? Steve Earle produced the album and played on it. It's, a, it's an album called Domestic Blues by BAP, B-A-P, Kennedy. Um, it's still one of my favourite albums. And myself and Keith, you know, the choir boys, we were in Bap's band in England and Ireland and whatever. Now, back, um, Steve Earle had 
always been a champion of BAPS. So he was flying him out to Nashville. But of course, Steve wanted to use and did use the cream of the crop of Nashville's session people. And I said to Keith, you know, so obviously we weren't invited just financially, which is fair enough, it's normal. I says, we're not missing out on this, Keith. So we we took ourselves over to Nashville and turned up. (laughs) But looking back, it's a bit cheeky, but you've got to be sometimes. But what was the best thing about it was um, Steve Earle had got back a suite at the Spence Manor Hotel, and it was the suite that Elvis always insisted on. So we moved in there, we're back, you know, and it had the, the guitar swimming pool and... You know, we would go down the studio every day and, you know, you, you've got... Oh, it was just incredible. And then um, Steve Earl realised, look, you know, we've got to get these guys on the album. You know, so me and Keith played a couple of tracks each on the album, which I'm very happy that we did. And then, you know, we took a day out to go to Memphis, the Sun Studios, and, you know... And I was... I, uh, I was doing a solo one of the a song called Low Life, and I had a 52 Nordcaster, you know, with a, you know, an ancient Fender um, champ. Anyway, I'm, I'm just warming up, and I snapped the string, and he looked at me, and I went, what? He says, they're the original strings. I'm like, no! <laughs> he was just pulling my leg. And uh, I was just about to do the, the solo, and he went, before you do this solo, just think of all the low life things that's ever happened to you in your life. And then boom, done. Good but, you know, great memories. And I'll tell you another one. There's um, on Copperhead Road, you know, Steve Earl, there's this sound, this drone, and I could never fathom out what it was. So when we were there, I said one day, I said, you know, that, that on Copperhead Road, that's like boing. And he looked at me, he says, no one's ever asked me that. And he opened the back door at the studio and there was an iron railing outside and he kicked it. He went, and it went, boing. He says, that's it. Wow. The microphone, the railing up and kicked it. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. Like, I remember, um, I think it was, it was, I think it was actually Paul Stanley's book when he was talking about uh, Destroyer. And they were recording, they would do stuff where they would go into like the bathroom because the acoustics were different. They do a little recording in there. So it's, it's amazing to hear, you know, those little, like I would never, cause I I know exactly what you're talking about. Copperhead road. I, yeah, it's, and it's like, yeah, it's just this unusual. And I've thought that about other songs and bands too. Like how the hell do they like, is that electronic? Like, what are they doing to, to get that sound? Well, again, you know, Bob Pridden, who was the Who's monitor engineer, you know, still is, you know, he, he was engineering this, this uh, work in that album with the Red Dogs. And, of course, he'd been at every Who album, you know, and, you know, they'd be, they'd be recording, they'd be swinging a microphone around to record it and all this, which is all very well until you're sitting there with your headphones on trying to figure something out. And you're going, what's going on? Yeah. A microphone in the face. <laughs> yeah, wallop. 
Yeah, it is fascinating when you get the insight. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's just the fact like they're not doing that for nothing. Like, that's the thing. Like, you would think, like, why the hell are they swinging a microphone? It's like, well, because they had nothing better to do. Like, no, like, there's actually, they hear something or they, you know, have a thought, like, maybe let's try this, see what happens, you know. And then next thing you know, you got some good content on your hands. Yeah. Although I'm drunk. (laughs) (laughs) That helps too. But, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, you watch Dolby on stage swinging the mic. You know, you know, you never get to truly the bottom of these things, but it's it's just so wonderful having some personal insight to stuff that you've wondered about. You know, if you've taken the time out to listen and then and, and try and figure it out. With the choir boys, with your time recording with them, have you guys ever done anything kind of unusual like that, like in a recording studio, like? maybe like an unusual instrument or unusual method or anything like that? Well, the, um, we recorded in this uh, studio in uh, Sweden, Lemon Studios, and it's, it's an old industrial unit in the middle of nowhere, right? And you open the door and it's got all these like old Swedish instruments that fishermen made out of bones and you know, just like a, a museum. So, you know, I attempted to use some of those on the, on the St. Cecilia album, and uh, they sounded terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I did play, I, you know, I can't play the mandolin, but I did play the mandolin on the album. But, you know, I kept it as simple as I possibly could. But, you know, I've, I've got no revelations about, because, uh, you know, we actually record very quickly, um, and time is the essence. So it's it's pretty standard how we record. Hmm. Yeah. And and how do you determine? So you, like you mentioned Sweden, that you record out there. How, how do you guys determine where, what studio? Like, is it more just logistics, and it just kind of works out, or is there like a particular reason? Well, no, I mean, um, again, you know, there's connections with people. The Lemon Studios, it was, there was a band that is a band uh, called Bonafide who've opened up for the Choir Boys many times and the bass player, he he owns the studio. Mm. So, he, you know, he spoke to our manager and gave us a very good deal. And we're best when, when, when we can't be found because we're one of those bands that everybody will pop in and want to party and that. And we, you know, and we've got like 10 days to, you know, write and record this thing. So if people can't find us, it's, uh, and of course the last one we did, uh, Amazing Disgrace, we did at Rockfield Studios in Wales where Queen did Bo- uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and Ozzy did Blizzard of Oz and you name it which was like, again, box ticked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, and again, fantastic experience, you know. And there's even this bit um, between the two studios, and it's where Noel Gallagher recorded Wonderwall, and he actually did it outside, you know, with Oasis, you know. And 
there's another great bit. There's a room up on the right-hand side, which originally had a piano in where Freddie worked on Bohemian Rhapsody. And if you go in that room, there's a weather vane on top of the building opposite, you know, north, south, east, west, with a cockerel on the top. And that's where you got the, the, the end line. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. And it's just wow. being there is like, wow. Yeah. Well, to be a part of that history, like. Yeah, very privileged. Yeah. And plus no one could find us, so it's yeah. perfect. <laughs> then you can really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring something interesting up like when you're talking about you know it's it's best for you guys to kind of just privately record because then that way you know limits distractions and all that and you know the partying atmosphere and stuff so when you were kind of coming up the ranks you know you're young man you know and you're kind of I guess in that demographic for that type of stuff um yeah was it like how did you kind of um handle that party lifestyle rock star lifestyle you know to kind of how, how did you navigate those waters very easily <laughs> you know when you when you're first in london and it's all going on no one had any money so that helps <laughs> so, so you know there's all you know there's all this sort of kind of mythology that you're at spring fellows every night and all that you know, you couldn't do it. It was just, you know, we're washing dishes in the day they to pay for picks and strings. But every now and then you would get a, you know, get to some cool party or something. But, you know, but it's not, you know, if you watch The Dirt by Monty Crow, it wasn't like that every day. You know, I like to, like, like to think people think it was, but... <laughs> and, you know, it's no different to anybody, whether you're a builder or a, a plumber. You know, your party. It's just we get, you know, we we get more opportunity. But the, the funny thing is now because of, you know, let, let's just forget about the plague. You know, we we you know we go to so many countries and we have so many friends now around the world. They haven't seen us for say a year, so it's Wednesday night in you know Stockholm. Right, we've got it all planned. Da, da, da. It's their big night now. We're going, yeah, but we've got to be at the airport at six o'clock in the morning. Can't do it. And it's like you feel like you're disappointing people all the time. But, you know, longevity is necessary. Well, and when you're working hard, <laughs> you don't have time to kind of be wild and crazy like that. You know, it's like, hey, we got a job to do. Well, that's it. Because if you think about it, because you know, say many years ago, the schedule wasn't as it is now. So, you know, you were afforded time to have that young man's fun. Mm -hmm. But now it's just too brutal. And that's probably a good thing. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't like a good party? But, you know... It, 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 you know, as the years tick by, it gets a little tougher. Yeah, no, definitely. It's funny because my mom back in, because it's funny that you bring up Motley Crue, which was my mom was in, F uh, not Phoenix, Arizona, not Phoenix, but somewhere, I think it might have been Palm Springs. 
And what she was just there for whatever, you know, just kind of a little vacation. And uh, she, she told us a story and she's like, you know, there's a bunch of like really obnoxious, loud. And she was trying to figure like what the hell was going on at the hotel and like big party at the pool and all this stuff. And my, and I guess they passed her in the lobby or something. And my mom turned to her friend. She goes, who are those losers? And her friend goes, that's Molly crew. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, there's perspective, I guess, you know, that is funny. Yeah. It's, uh, Oh, they, listen, they certainly had a fun time. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they, they had it. Yeah, they had, a, they had a ball, that's for sure. But the thing is, everybody did, you know, but I'm just saying this, like, it all seems like so long ago. You know, you you know, you look back on these things and you see yourself as a different person. But, you know, I'm saying that doesn't mean, you know, just because you're in a band, I think it's everybody. You know? The biggest party as I ever met with the chefs when I was washing their dishes. Flipping heck, you know, hardcore. <laughs> yeah, teach the rock stars a few things. Yeah, a few things. I know how to cook. I'd say generally, like, as just kind of more of your general music taste, because, you know, you talked about growing up as a kid, you know, listen to guys like Elvis, Hank Williams. And yeah. as your, did your musical, um, Actually, we'll, we'll go two parts. We'll say, as far as your playing, how was that influenced and or what influenced that? And then what would you listen to just kind of like on your downtime or on your own time? You know, I, I was, I'd be honest, right? I was thinking about this today in, in preparation for our interview. And in reality, I, there's, a, there's a radio station called Planet Rock. Mm. Now, I listen to that mainly because I'm always doing something. So if I'm, if I'm not actually making music or writing it, I'll have that in the background because I like, you know, I like making things and whatever. Um, but if I was to sit down and put something on, I love Rod Stewart. And... I'm not bothered which period, you know, that's, everybody hooks into the disco period, oh, it's terrible. I love it all, you know, and like, I love the faces, I love Elton John, I love the Georgia satellites, uh, you know, and I I got a phone call from Dan Bed 15 years ago saying, right, I want you to play guitar with me on my tour. And that was just like, whoa. And you know what he said to me? I said, okay, um, what songs do you want me to specifically learn? He went, all of them. <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm, I'm very obsessive because uh, I'd seen a, a bunch of guitar players playing with them, all great players. But the, to me, the Georgia Satellites, you know, and Rick Richards, those solos are important as the songs. And I learned them, learned them, learned them. Then flew over to Geneva, no no rehearsals, got picked up at the airport, bang, started the tour. And that was magic. I love a band called Jason and Scorchers. So, you know, Warner Hodges, the guitar player, is one of my favourites. Again, I ended up playing with them, becoming friends. Um, I've forgotten what I've said now. <laughs> but, you know, it's like I love Duran Duran. 
you know, real clever, articulate songwriting production. Um, you know, David Bowie. You know, some you know some obvious, and I still love listening to country radio, even if you know if, if, if it's the same story. It doesn't matter. I'm a bit of a softy, so it's like I like a bit of heartbreak. You know, Bob Seger. Um, Thin Lizzy. Now, Thin Lizzy were a big one for me. I saw them in 1976 for the first time. And it was Scott Gorham, Brian Robertson, you know, the, the real team, you know what I mean? And then I ended up having a band with Brian Robertson called The Clan, which was like a heavy blues band. And he'd been previously playing with Frankie Miller, who I absolutely adore Frankie Miller. I don't know if you're familiar you know, but um, Bob Seger's covered a lot of his songs. Rod Stewart's covered his stuff, songs. Glaswegian fella. Genius. You know, so your listeners said, check out all these people. You know, open a whole new chapter in their musical lives. Well, and that's great that, you know, the, the sad thing about, you know, the music industry was that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these people die before you know they die so young and you know and yeah so i was wondering um did you ever get the chance to see free when paul kossoff was still alive no i didn't i didn't um that was you know well it wasn't before my time but it the opportunity didn't come along but of course i wish i had mm. yeah because he, another you know he's another one that's just like <sighs> you know, the master of the space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the vibrato. Yeah, beautiful. Well, it, you know, you bring up something really kind of, it kind of reminds me of me, which is like these, all the different music. And it, I always joke with people like when I give them, because I have an iPod touch still, like when I guess it's like eight years old now or something, it still works well. Yeah, I've, like, got, I've got one, I've got one too. <laughs> hang, they're hanging on, they're hanging on. Yeah. And it was kind of funny, you give it to my roommate or whoever, like, ah, play, play something. And you got the most random, like literally from, I mean, I think the oldest, I got Sinatra, yeah. Kira, Rob Zombie, Choir Boys, you know, country yeah. stuff. Like, it's just all over the map, but it's, it's one of those things, like, I think it's also important to, like, why not? If it's if it's good, it's good. Why not listen to that stuff? Why should you pigeonhole yourself in the you know? It's like, I mean, look at me, you know, with this silly long hair. <laughs> and you know, those who do not know me would just go, well, he must be heavy metal. <laughs> well, right. well, do you know what? I'm 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 not anything. I'm just a bloke with long hair. <laughs> Is he from who loves music? <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's it's like, you know, why bigot yourself to say, well, I'm not listening to that because, you know, I'm not really allowed to like it because of this or that, you know what I mean? It's too silly. You know, and I get, it's like, there was one day I was in the back garden digging a hole or something, and my stepdaughter was playing something, some rap thing. But the drum beat was brilliant. And of course, I just went into my studio, pinched the drum beat and recorded it. 
and kept it to put something that wasn't rap, obviously. Mm. So you can be influenced by all sorts of things. Well, and there was a, I'm not sure if you ever would have seen it, but it was called uh, Crossroads. It was, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go. So it was, um, I believe it was CMT. Was the, it was about, the film was Steve Vai. Oh, that one, the movie, but the, the TV show as well. I'm oh, not, no. So the, the one that Sorry. I saw, and basically the concept of the show, I'm not, it went on for a fair while. I think it was a few seasons. And it would be, um, they'd have two artists or two bands from kind of opposite genres. And then they would play each other's songs together. Oh, right. And the, the first one I saw was Hank Williams Jr. and Kid Rock. And that was bloody good. And the, my favorite one still is uh, Def Leppard with Taylor Swift. Yeah. yeah. I think it was back in like early 2000s. Or, or actually, maybe not quite. I guess it would have, 2010s, I think it would have been. Early. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but, you know, the concept, I think it's excellent because also the people who listen to Taylor Swift that's a very different demographic than the people who would listen to Def Leppard. And you can kind of bring them together. And I'm sure the, the parents of the, you know, the people who listen to Taylor Swift would know Def Leppard. So it's kind of funny how you can connect, you know, you connect people. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing is, it's something like that would make it acceptable for the kids because they were told it was, it was cool. So if Taylor Swift was playing with Def Leppard, well, that's cool. You know, but they wouldn't have picked it up on them by themselves. I'm not being derogatory there. It's just it just doesn't happen that way, really. You know, but brilliant concept. Well, and it's it's great to like I was telling you um, yesterday, um, like when I saw you guys uh, for the 35 and live show, um, the person that was supposed to come with me couldn't go, so I had the spare ticket, and I'm trying to think like. None of my friends, you know, because you you want to bring someone who's a fan so they can enjoy it. And then I'm like, well, I don't I don't know if anyone knows who they are. So I'm like, so I'm just like, that's fine. So I, I asked my one friend who who's in law with me, and she's got a. I knew she would like it. She got the good personality for it. You know, she she just likes yeah. to have fun. And I'm like, listen, like I got a ticket. Don't worry about it. You and I we're gonna go see this band. And she's like, oh, like like should I listen? I'm like, don't even listen to anything. Doesn't matter. Let's just go see him. You're gonna love him. <laughs> by the second song she looks at me and she goes like holy shit like this is awesome so the rum and cokes uh helped uh, helped us enjoy the show too well, yeah. that would help any situation <laughs> but listen isn't it such a fantastic venue fantastic mm -hmm. you know and the funny thing is um in 1987 when i moved to london that very night, the first band I saw in London at that venue was Steve Earle. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, so everybody there. Mm -hmm. So um, please, God, because in England now, the, 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 they're um, relaxing the, uh, the lockdown, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're due to play two nights there in September with the orchestra. Right. So um, as long as there's not too many restrictions, you know, hopefully it'll go ahead. And I have a ticket to one of those shows, or I, I did back 
whenever the, yeah. the show was originally supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's still valid. Yeah. Yeah. It's, exactly. a, it's, a, long, it's a long way for you to come. <laughs> oh, I'll be there with bells on. Trust me. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure we can sit and have a drink together. Yeah. Exactly. But you know, it's funny because you know the great thing about like the the great thing about like the the friend that I brought. You know, she's a huge fan now. Yeah. Because well, thank all you, you. Do is you just kind of have to get your foot in the door and go, oh, you know, I can hear some stuff. And it, and I will say it, it definitely does. Cause I was the, the, well, I was joking with you um, saying that cause I was a university student there for three years and I swear it was the most frustrating thing. And my parents can attest to this, which was every time I would come home for, you know, Christmas break, yeah. spring break, you guys would be in England and then every time I was there, you guys would be in Europe or like too far away yeah. from go, driving me nuts. And then finally <laughs> worked out that I you saw you on that one show, and then supposed to be two or three other ones. And um, but you know that's just the thing, like seeing what's how you how you know the quality of a band is when you you hear their music, you like them, you think they're great, and then you go and you see them live, and you go, oh, this is way better. You know, because the it's just the on top of the actual music being great, the the practitioners, you know, the performers are just so good at what they do, and that really makes it stand out. And plus, you know, we're a band that feeds off the audience, and you know, as you saw, our audience is is damn good. They're fun. <laughs> oh, so can you imagine? You know, you stand there playing to that. And you're watching everybody sing every word, you know, I couldn't feel better. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I noticed too, which I thought, cause I always joke, well, now I'm kind of at the ripe old age of 24, I'm getting older, but you know, I used to go to, <laughs> you. Yeah, exactly, right? you know, I used to go to shows when I was like six years old was my earliest one that I can remember. And so I always enjoy being, like the youngest one i'm like yeah i'm the youngest guy here kind of thing you know it's always yeah. fun and, but it's great now because like at the the one choir boy show you see I, I was surprised to see a lot of people more my age too you know oh, kind of in their across the board it's across the board and you know a lot of bands have said it but it's like bands from our era the reason we're still doing it is because it, it touch it, it the music you know it's blues it's rock it's country you know it touches people the lyrics are important you know and a lot of these people have grown up with our parents listening to the choir boys or you know whoever and you know it's transcended to them which is great you know and then we're even getting third generation you know, and, you know, we, we obviously always go out and meet people and all that. And then you've got these kids with the big ear protectors on and the little choir boys T-shirt, you know, and we give them picks and sticks and that. And, uh, you know, you like to think, well, you know, they'll remember that in 30 years' time when we're all gone. <laughs> well, and that's, it's kind of like that legacy in a way. Like, you know, the, the music stands the test of time. And, you know, I have to say, like, you know, there is... I mean, you know, luckily for me, you know, I grew up in 
I mean, my dad would take all like my two brothers as well. And, and my mom would come out occasionally too. And, you know, he, he really, you know, would, would emphasize like, you know, like there's so many memories, like there's a special kind of memory. Like it, it's kind of hard to explain, yeah. but it's, I think no, you know, I know what you mean. you'll know what I mean. Yeah. 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 And it is special. And then, you know, when you get older, you, it becomes more special because it's like, you know, you may just meet someone and say, oh, I saw so-and-so in Baltimore in 74. Well, I saw them at so-and-so and, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's, it's almost like it's like a badge of honour. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, we all do that. When I saw them before you did. <laughs> And you get to connect, you know, you get to connect, oh. like, even though you weren't there together in a way you kind of were. Absolutely. The ice is broken. And then, you know, Pandora's box of, box of great rock and roll stories, you know, and your love of music mm -hmm. starts pouring out. It's it kind of related to that. I, I was just kind of wondering, like, was there ever, because I you talk about, obviously, like you get to, through your career and you know you've had the opportunity to play with some amazing people and just meet some amazing people and was there ever um was there any memories that stand out to you where somebody that you looked up to came to you and said hey, i'm a huge fan of you like did you kind of ever have it in the reverse where it was like man like this person's a fan of of me or the choir boys or well <laughs> Not so much, well, you know what, I can't think. <laughs> <laughs> I know. As, as soon as we end the podcast, then you're going to be like, oh, I got 10 more yeah. stories about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's more the fact that the people who've wanted me to play with them has been enough of a, an honor. You know, I played with Michael Schenker. You know, I did America, Japan, Europe. Played with Joe Walsh. You know, um, I, I can't, you know what I can't think right now? Those two names yeah. are pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I you know, I, I used to jam with Gary Moore. Oh, wow. And, yeah, terrifying. And, you know, Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy, you know, he wanted me in his band. Um, so it's, it's, it's not so much that they've come and said, you know, I'm a fan, but the fact, you know, and obviously Joe Elliott, you know, he could pick anybody. Yeah, yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Leopard, holy cow. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's it's more it's a more of a satisfying honor that you know of all the people on the planet, you know, the the pick me. Mm -hmm. So that's that you know, that's enough for me. Well, and that must be like it's one of those things too, like when you kinda it, it's great to to hear that the you know obviously you know joe elliott from def leppard huge joe walsh like these are just mega huge names and it's really cool to hear that they're they're not like these kind of stuck up ego guys who just kind of uh you know i'm too good to play with certain people it's like no no, no. like we're all we're all doing this together we're all here trying to make the best music that we can do and we can bond yeah. together over that and find find a lot of common ground and some great times it's i'm sure 
Oh yeah, and again, you know, I, you know, I'm not so egotistical or, you know, to think that, you know, they sort me out. There was a lot of synchronicity involved in circumstances that put me in the right place at the right time. But that's that's how it uh, it works out, and it's worked out well. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you because my I know my I'm like I'm a huge uh, Scorpions fan and all that. Yeah. With um, did you record with Michael Schenker or you toured with him? I toured with him. What it was is um, he, you know, this started in 1993, and he had an album out called Positive Forward, which is instrumental acoustic music, and. Um, I started out as a tech. Oh, okay. Right? But as part of the UF UFO show, he wanted to do some of this album. And um, he'd heard me play. I mean, it was quite difficult stuff. Um, so my, myself, Michael, and my friend Leon Lawson, who was the other tech, we either open, you know, as the opening act, and uh, all in the middle of the show, we would come on and do it. You know, there is a there is a there's a live bootleg from Japan, um, which I have. You know, so which is nice to have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and but you know, but you know, it was never it was never sort of like a, a situation where like you know like we were a band. Still got to play with them. No. And I, you know, I used to, I used to rehearse with UFO with, you know, Pete Wade, Phil Mug, before Schenker would arrived, so they would become, you know, ready for the the sessions. One of the things I really enjoy about the Choir Boys in particular is that you guys, you you do a lot of. Well, okay, so the half penny dancer stuff, the acoustic. What I really like, and it kind of reminds me of. Um, uh, Joe Bonamassa, who does this a lot, you know, he'll do these acoustic sets and he'll, his regular electric stuff. And he just kind of, even though it's his own music, he really changes it up and tries yeah. different styles. And so going from playing electric and obviously being great electric band and then transitioning and doing some acoustic stuff and kind of in interesting things like that. What's that process like for you, you know, just to kind of switch it up a little bit? Uh, it, totally simple, natural, um, because we, we do tours with uh, myself, Spike Guy and Keith, just the four of us. So it's two acoustic guitars, Keith piano, and, you know, we all sing. And, you know, we, we, we play different venues than we would with the full band. And it's a whole different vibe, the show because, you know, we all do a lot of talking with the audience and there's a lot of interaction and um, it's more of a, a raconteur night, you know, and stories will come out and it's... Uh, it's not something, you know, like... The, the thing is, 90% of those songs were written in an acoustic fashion because, you know, like, you know, you know we never rehearse ever so it's not as though like we're in a room with the amps blaring going I've got this riff 
it's just, you know, a guy will come to me and say, look, I've got this song and all that and will work and, you know, and I'll, I've got a song. So they generally come together when we are in the studio recording the album. So we'll get the song together in the morning and then record it. And, you know, and then, because how, how it generally works is songs I write, I write the complete song and then I'll collaborate on some of them with Spike and Guy. You know, it just happens. It's just, it's very natural, to be honest. Um, and it was so funny because I was talking to Guy Griffin the other night and he said, look, you know, it's it's 13 months since we're playing. We're probably not going to play it long because he goes, we'll have to uh, book a rehearsal. I says, it won't happen. He went, no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. That's hilarious. I said, it won't happen. But I said, we'll all be ready. It's a good idea. In theory, it's a good idea, but it's fine. Yeah. It won't won't happen. But the thing is, I know we'll walk on that stage and it'll be like yesterday since we played the last show. Well, and that's the funny thing, right? Because it it really must be like, I don't know, maybe sitting here because it's been, like you said, it's been already 13 months. I guess maybe you can kind of, it may feel like it's been a while, but I'm sure as soon as you walk on stage again, it'll be like, oh yeah, well, you know, we're right back where we left off. You know, it's, it's been. Well, I, I had this thought yesterday and um, I went to uh, the video shoot of Rock and Roll Train ACDC. Now they hadn't played together, obviously they made the album, but you know, they hadn't played live together in seven years. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine that? Seven years. And especially when you're that part of the age spectrum. You know, so 13 months, even though it's a a drag, it's passed. And the next four whatever months will pass. You know, and we've done a new album. And I've built a new, I've built another summer house and blah, blah, blah. You know, you just deal with the cards you're dealt with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And I mean, that's kind of been the biggest thing for me too, is just, you know, stay positive, you know, don't Absolutely. stop working either, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, keep do, or do more even, you know, to kind of deal with the, uh, a bit of the negative emotion, just keep, keep doing as much positive stuff as you can do. Well, again, I, I laughed to myself, right? Because that, you know, I won't lie, you know, not every day, you know, like I don't cartwheel out of bed every day and, you know, go, woohoo, you know, like the circus clown. There have been days when I went, just do it tomorrow because you can. But, you know, that's just, that's just human, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And plus I've got two broken ribs right now, so I can't cartwheel anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and it's pro- yeah probably would would affect you if you were playing live. I'd imagine it would. Yes, you know, I, I, it was a few years ago, and you're going to love this, and it's because it's a true story. I was about to start a, a six weeks choir boys tour, then straight from that onto a, a four week down and out tour, and the day before the tour, I was taking the trash out, and a banana skin had slipped out of one of the rubbish bags and I fell on it and I 
I broke this finger. See, look at it. Right. So the whole t the whole duration of the tour, I had to have these fingers strapped together. But what's really funny is, you know, you see these photographs on the internet when you've got the guitar player's face. And people think, oh, he's getting into it. No, every time I hit that bridge, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was because the, the break was there. Right. I was just in agony, you see. And what's really funny is I've, I've taken a lot of codeine and whatnot before this interview, so I didn't. You know, I didn't want to be like sort of some old man going, ooh. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But since I did it, I'm sure my wife does it on purpose, which is she keeps trying to make me laugh. Yeah. And I'm saying, <laughs> please leave the room. I can't do this, yeah. you know. And then just before we, you know, we recorded this, I could feel a sneeze brewing. Oh, and I thought, oh no. <laughs> but... Thankful, thankfully, it hasn't come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's good. That's good. I know it's that's a crappy injury too because it's like you just kind of ride the wave through it. You know, it's just like, ugh. oh yeah, there's nothing you can do. But it's like it, it takes about two hours to get out of bed in the morning. I need sort of like a hoist. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah, it's pretty. Funny. I know. I've, hey, trust me, I've done it before. Yeah. <laughs> accidents happen right oh yes so we're kind of coming to the end of uh of our time here and so i just wanted to uh before we close it off um i guess you guys have some tour dates coming up i mean it's all you know covid permitting whatnot yeah near the end of the year I, it was september you said well september will be the uh, the two forum shows and um, see, I, I'm confident that they'll go ahead, but because it's, you know, it's sort of like 4,000, you know, people a night. But if they're opening sports venues and so please God, you know, they've opened the pubs and everything now. So if everybody just, you know, is careful, not that we don't get another spike. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about our singer. <laughs> um, it should be good but I don't want to tempt fate but it will come back at some point and please God because obviously we, 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 you know, we're going to be doing it with a, an orchestra but again to try and prepare an orchestra in these COVID times you know some people have grumbled well what's happening well, you try and get an orchestra together and rehearse it and do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We will do our best to do our best. Yeah. And when and when it's all back, it's back. You know, at the end of the day. Exactly. And it, you know what? We all look, you know, obviously a lot of people have lost loved ones, but and I'm not being flippant, but we look back on it, it was like a blink of an eye. Oh like, like one like most things are. Yeah, it feels feels like uh you know, it's it's never ending when you're in it, but it's really not. You know, in the in the big picture, it's yeah. Yeah, the big picture. Listen, I'm fine. You know, I'm I'm blessed that I. You know, I'm not a person that ever gets bored. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. no. As long as because I on the Five USA channel, they have Colombo days. So 
those are the days I don't do anything and I've, I've watched Colombo all day. Those are your recovery <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's really great to have you on the show. I mean, I, uh, I was excited and nervous and all this because, you know, I've been a fan for so long and it's, it's really great to, uh, it's just great to speak with you and it's great having you on here. Well, you know what? I've really enjoyed speaking with you, mate. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you so much. So hopefully I'll be seeing you guys pretty soon and, uh, you know, we'll be staying in touch and all that, but thank you for being here and I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you again in the future. Well, let's hope so. Great. Thank you so much. I'm very available at the moment. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. Okay. Thank you.